Hi, this is Joel Morgan, the voice of Valley City State University in Valley City, North Dakota. I think it's safe to say that every broadcaster's goal is to be the best they can be at their craft. But just like anything else, if you don't have a game plan, it's hard to execute. Looking to set my goals for the upcoming season, I submitted my audio to the critique crew at SayTheDamnScore.com. Within a week, I got back a written critique which included areas of improvement, my strengths, and a fresh set of ideas to help improve my broadcast. With the help of the critique crew at SayTheDamnScore.com, I now have a game plan for improvement. So I suggest if you're looking to get better, step up your game and get a fresh set of ears on your play-by-play, visit SayTheDamnScore.com today. Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome, everyone, to episode 62 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. I'm Logan Anderson, a play-by-play broadcaster in South Dakota, and this podcast is dedicated to talking about the sportscasting industry with sportscasting professionals at all levels from across the country. Today, I'm happy to welcome on John Ramey, the voice of the University of Nevada Wolfpack. And John, you know, we catch you here just a couple days after... Uh, being on an NCAA tournament run to the Sweet 16 with Nevada in your first year. And I just want you to kind of take us through what your last couple weeks or so have been like covering the Wolfpack in the tournament. So I was really fortunate to cover three College World Series runs when I was covering UCLA baseball as their play-by-play voice, including my first year, 2010, with UCLA baseball. They went all the way to the national finals and lost uh, the final College World Series game at Rosenblatt to South Carolina. So I had some sense of what a deep run in the tournament would feel like. But because college basketball is a bigger sport uh, than college baseball, is a higher profile endeavor, uh, it was incredible. And, you know, every game is kind of like the Super Bowl. I know it's not a single game like the Super Bowl, but the whole tournament is such a media content producer and it's covered because it's covered appropriately because it's such content gold to use a 21st century expression. Um, That was really neat. It was really exciting. And, you know, I, the first two games Nevada played were an overtime come from behind win against a little school called Texas. (laughs) And then the pack come back from 22 down in the second half, the largest second half comeback victory in the history of the tournament. So those are two kind of once in a lifetime games to merely attend once in a career opportunity to cover. And those were the first two games in the run. And then in the sweet 16, a one point loss to Loyola Chicago, which is right now the story of the year in American sport. So, uh, it was, it was awesome and super memorable and, you know, something I'll carry with me forever. And the relationships that you develop all year long are kind of really galvanized um, because anyone who's been around sports knows that runs like that don't grow on trees. And so you really appreciate them when they, when they come your way. 
One of the things that I've noticed, and whether it's fair or unfair, broadcasters are often, you know, bad broadcasters are beloved in small towns if their team is winning, and good ones if the team is losing. Sometimes the the fan base doesn't like them the way they should. How fortunate are you to be able, in your first year, when you're kind of getting to know the fan base, to have a winning team that everybody can kind of wrap their heads around? Oh, it's a gift. I mean, it's a really fortunate break because, first of all, in my situation, I'm replacing, I shouldn't say replacing because he's not replaceable. I'm the next guy after Ryan Radke matriculated to Westwood One in national coverage. And Radke had been in this market for nine years and was a beloved voice and for good reason. Um, He covered some of the most memorable moments in the history of the university's athletics department. And he's also an astoundingly good broadcaster. So for me to show up and try to fill those shoes as best I can, it's really helpful to have a 29 win team uh, to be sharing with your audience. It's not really fair, but that's how it goes, right? I mean, if your team is doing well, Uh, you're bringing good news to people and there is positivity by association. Um, There's also pressure with it. You know, you want to, when you are describing historic moments in the school's history, in in the sport, in the program's history, you don't want to mess it up, but that's good pressure, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I was just telling somebody off the air before we were chatting that I should have talked to you about three weeks, three weeks ago before the tournament because I filled out a bracket with based solely on broadcasters who had been on the podcast, and <laughs> and and I had Texas Tech, K State, Kansas, and Michigan all on it to, to go along with uh, Marshall and Ohio State that all won their first round games and then four of them made the Elite Eight. So had I had you guys on the podcast, I would have had another Sweet 16 one. So uh, the, I'm blaming the timing on, I'm blaming you because I don't want to take personal responsibility. That's fine. That's just like I'm taking full credit for 29 wins in my first season of Colin Basketball. <laughs> so you've had broadcasting as part of your life probably more or less your whole life because your yeah. father was in the business. Uh, give us a little bit of a a Cliff Notes version of what he did in the industry and how that led to you becoming a broadcaster down the road. So my dad, Hal Ramey, is, uh, let's see, 71 years young. He's still the host of the Cal football postgame, or he was this past fall, uh, for Learfield. Um, he was a play-by-play voice in the Bay Area, uh, briefly in Oregon with the University of Oregon and the Middle 80s. And I lived in Eugene for a little bit as a kid, but I moved, mostly grew up in the Bay Area. And he was, a, he was a play-by-play guy. He did San Jose State, and he filled in for Bill King on the Warriors, and he did one year with the A's in 1979, and uh, eventually got work with the University of Oregon and then did Stanford football. Also was the voice of the NASL earthquakes in the 70s and the 80s and then was the original voice when the MLS came back in 1996 of what are now the San Jose Earthquakes, actually what are now the Houston Dynamo. That franchise started out as the San Jose Clash in 1996 in the MLS. So I grew up going to games, 
Um, my dad was really cool. He didn't ever pressure me to go into the industry. He would often say, oh, this is a silly business, you know, be a, go be an astronaut. Um, and certainly I was very fortunate because although my dad had success as a broadcaster, um, I grew up in a, in a house with the wide spectrum of, uh, interests. My mom is a musician. My dad is, a enthusiastic about music, has a great record collection, reads a lot about other things. So it wasn't just all sports all the time, but I had a very privileged position in that, you know, I could get tickets or when I got a little bit older, I'd go help out my dad in the press box. Um, when I was about 16, I remember after a 49ers game, regular season, my dad sent me to go get sound uh, in the visiting team's locker room. And that was the Aikman and uh, Michael Irvin and uh, Emmett Smith Cowboys. And I remember thinking, boy, I'd, I'd better be pretty professionally composed here. And I stood with about 20 other people and shoved a microphone in Emmett Smith's face. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was able to see how to be a professional um, just because I grew up with my dad. And that is uh, something that is an incredible advantage and an incredible privilege. And um, I'm always very cognizant of that. So do you feel sympathy for somebody like Joe Buck, who's basically irrationally hated by a lot of people because he has a famous dad who was a sportscaster? Uh, do you kind of relate to that at all in any way? It's funny. Joe Buck's biggest crime is not being Jack Buck. Um, that's true. I generally feel sympathy for people who don't like who hate on broadcasters, particularly play-by-play -play broadcasters, because that's a craft I care a lot about. And it's a craft I feel I am fairly aware of. I mean, I just oftentimes the, the reasons that are cited for fans, and we have to remember fan is short for fanatic, which is not a rational orientation. The reason fans don't like certain broadcasters, and Joe Buck is a great example, because he's an outstanding broadcaster. He's a great play-by-play -play voice. Um, the, the reasons people don't like him, for example, or other people are just silly, you know, for the most part. And, uh, and also inaccurate most of the time. So I have empathy generally for broadcasters who call live games because everybody's watching along and, you know, everybody who bothers to get on Twitter, you know, thinks they know a little bit about the sport and the broadcasting element of it. And they, they probably do. I mean, if you're an American, it's impossible to escape live sports production, whether it's radio, television, internet, whatever. So we all feel like we have, we're entitled to an opinion about it, whether we work in the industry or not. I mean, it's like anything else in show business. I like to joke with offensive coordinators. I, uh, I've talked to coach Norvell about this. I've talked to coach mummy about this at Nevada. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I talked to Jim Moore about this at UCLA too. But, uh, offensive coordinators and also just football coaches, coaches in general, really. But football, it, it comes, I think, to the to the big. It comes into focus the most. If you call plays for a football team or you're a play-by-play -play broadcaster, you have a job that 99% of people think they can do at least as well as you. Right? Whether they're right or not is irrelevant. Let's just so say they're not. That's the yeah. That well, we don't know. There aren't that many jobs, you know, so it, it, I do have empathy generally for that. 
You know, I want to follow up on that. Were there ever doors that were opened for you because of your father's position, or was it, uh, I mean, you're still a very self-made broadcaster from what I've read and what I know about you. Uh, How did that help you, and how did it maybe, how was it maybe a hindrance? It was never a hindrance. Um, First of all, my dad's really good at his job and has a great reputation, and uh, so that's never held me back. I think what has happened generally, and we have to understand my dad worked in a, in, in a local market. Now, San Francisco is not a small market, but my dad's not Jack Buck. Um, so when I, for example, the, the two biggest breaks that I got through my father's previous or my, my father's existing professional relationships were due to his long standing tenure at KCBS. CBS Radio San Francisco, he had a contact at KNX Radio Los Angeles, which is also CBS. And I was able to get an interview, the assistant news director, Ron Bradford, very long tenured CBS employee. And that led to me getting a board op job on the weekend food news show hosted by Melinda Lee. Um, So that was my first, I mean, that was a foot in the door, right? I got a guy's number. I got an interview. Maybe that doesn't happen if I'm just some guy. But it's not like I got an interview at KNX and they made me the morning sports anchor. You know what I'm saying? I, I still had to not be an idiot and work my way up to the opportunities I got. I was never morning sports anchor. I filled in a couple of times. The other thing was my dad knew Stan Morrison from my dad's time at San Jose State and Stan's time as an assistant there. Stan Morrison was the, uh, was the athletics director at UC Riverside. They were looking for a women's basketball play-by-play voice. I got that interview. And, and I got a D1 job. And, you know, that's a big deal. But if I'd been an idiot, I wouldn't have come back for a second season of women's basketball. You know what I mean? It's not like, it's not like my dad was president, you know. But those are incredible positions. I mean, those are incredible advantages, incredible privilege. So you did not immediately go into broadcasting. You tried to be a full-time touring musician first. I guess take us through why you made that decision and what eventually led you to getting into full-time broadcasting. So I was doing broadcasting all four years of high school. Uh, there was a local station covering local high school sports. And while I was still in high school, my freshman year, I started doing basketball play-by-play for my high school. And by the time I was a senior, I'd done football, basketball, baseball, volleyball, all on local TV in Walnut Creek, California. And by the time I got to college, I went to Indiana to study journalism initially. I was burnt out. I was burnt out. And I'd always also been a musician. I had been in the jazz band, the symphonic band, and I played piano, took piano lessons. And so I'd always had uh, aptitude in music. And so when I was done with college, I went to Los Angeles to pursue music full time. And I wanted to be a songwriter. I wanted to be Tom Petty. I wanted to be Bob Dylan. You know, I love, I love American uh, what I like to call Southern working class music, right? Um, which we colloquially would call rock and roll or folk or R&B or country and Western. I like all that stuff. And it just, 
you know, in my early twenties, that just felt like what I needed to be doing. It needed to be explored. Um, but it's hard to make a living. There aren't that many jobs. It's show business. And so after maybe five years, uh, I, I still having to have day jobs anyway to pursue music. I said, you know what, maybe I'll do this, uh, try this broadcasting thing out again. I mean, that in and of itself is, um, I mean, it sounds funny now to hear that, right? Like, oh, let me see what I got going on. I'll do some Pasadena City College games and get a tape, and then I'll get a job at KNX, one of the most famous broadcasting entities in the history of media, and I'll get a women's division one play-by-play job. I mean, I had some really good breaks early on, but that's how it went. What similarities in the skill set that it takes to be a good songwriter cross over to being a wordsmith on a microphone as a broadcaster? Songwriting, not as much. Songwriting is its own kind of meditative, quiet deal. I would say being a performer, whether it's being an instrumentalist, a sideman in a band, or being the lead singer of an act, um, being a performance artist is a, is, a, is a thing. And whether it's broadcasting or whether I'm playing a three-hour show at the pregame tailgate of the Rose Bowl, which my band did uh, for a couple seasons uh, before UCLA football games, you've got to be ready to either be great or to produce a reasonable facsimile of greatness uh, pretty much on demand all the time. So you've got to be prepared. You've got to have... You, you have got to have put in the thousands of hours of uh, training and conditioning so that your skill set is like breathing. Um, you've just got to have a bunch of skills ready to bring to bear at a moment's notice um, as a performance professional. I mean, that's why I love sport, because it's not terribly different to ballet or to opera or to theater acting or anything else. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the idea of can you be your best right now. And in the case of athletes, in the case of high-end show business, um, you know, the Olympics are great for this. Can you be your best right now while the whole world's watching and you might not get another shot of this in your lifetime? Now, I, my music career was never at that uh, stage and my broadcasting career has not reached that stage, but it's still the same idea. And, and that's the challenge that I find extremely professionally satisfying. Whether it's a Tuesday game at Coley Park, Nevada against Santa Clara in college baseball, or whether it's the round of 32 against Cincinnati, you know, in the NCAA tournament or whatever, college world series, like you've just got to be great right now because the moment demands it. And that's fun to try to do. I know that one of the things I love about broadcasting is kind of, as you alluded to is it, it is a performance in many ways. And I have no musical ability, but I get, a little bit of uh, adrenaline rush that I love. Basically, as soon as they start counting down, three, two, one, you're on, and it's part of what makes it worth doing. I know having seen uh, enough, essentially, MTV documentaries and VH1 behind the musics to know that a lot of people love that adrenaline rush on stage. How do they compare? Well, I've had... I've been really fortunate to play with a couple of acts that have done some big shows. 
in particular, I, I played for a time with a guy named Austin Hanks and the California King Snakes, and we opened up for Leonard Skinner a handful of times. I played two of those shows. Austin has done more with uh, Skinner. But it was, I mean, that was kind of like the first time I went on the air from the College World Series. It was, wow, I've really been working hard for a long time to have this experience, and here it is. And I hope I don't screw it up, but I, I think I'm all right. I think I've... <laughs> think I put in the work um you know like anything like fear of public failure gives it a little juice I think that's what you're describing right three two one you're on you know if you face plant it's not fatal it's probably you know at this stage in your career and our in my career I could screw up probably and still make it so that most people wouldn't even really notice I mean that's true professionalism uh, you, you, you minimize your errors or you correct them quickly and you move on. But yeah, the fear of public failure uh, is something that's definitely shared. Um, and I think being a broadcaster is a little bit more like being like the bass player, you know, a sideman in a band uh, than it is like being the lead singer, right? The game is the lead singer, right? Uh, Kayla Martin hits a three-pointer to tie the game against Cincinnati at 73. I don't, but I'm there to support it, and it's a moment that requires me to be professionally sound. And so I have to be aware of that. And when you're like a sideman, you know, if you're playing bass for, you know, whatever big act you want to say, if you're in the E Street band and you're the bass player, you've got to understand that it's about the boss, but you've got to be good too. Just a random story. My one time that I tried to get into music in high school, I, I bought a, a bass and never learned how to play it. I still have it to this day. It's sitting in my closet about four feet away from where we are. <laughs> what kind? Uh, it is a Squire P bass. Oh, Red. It's, it is the same go. one that uh, Cassandra plays in Wayne's World. Oh, yeah. They do uh, Ballroom Blitz. They do a good version of that. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, I never learned how to play it, but I still have it. There's your irrelevant fact of the day. So you've mentioned the College World Series a few times, and usually I try to talk about sports casting instead of, you know, sports and sports events. But I have a personal affinity for that event because I grew up 15 minutes away from Omaha, and I feel like it's kind of one of sports' hidden gems. You've oh, been there. Great. You've been there. Were you there both at Rosenblatt and at the new park? Yeah, so get this. I mean, you talk about first year, good fortune. 2010, I'm working with UCLA baseball. The year before, I was doing UC Riverside in the Big West, which is a great baseball conference, but Riverside was not threatening to go to the College World Series. They've been to one regional uh, since I've been doing college baseball. So uh, it's the last year at Rosenblatt, 2010. And UCLA gets all the way to the finals against South Carolina. South Carolina beats Gary Cole in game one. Game two, the Bruins force him into extra innings. It's the 11th inning, and South Carolina walks it off and wins it. The last College World Series pitch at Rosenblatt I got to cover. And that was a moment for me that I was just so happy I didn't screw up because, first of all, it was the team – that I didn't work for winning the national championship on a, an 11th inning walk-off. 
And it was a big moment in American sport, the last College World Series at Rosenblatt, where it had been for close to 50 years, I want to say. Um, so, yeah, that one, one, when I didn't screw that up, I, I was really happy. And, uh, you know, I posted it on the audio on YouTube and the South Carolina fans were very complimentary about my, you know, even handed call, which, you know, would have been criminal if I hadn't, you know, called it with some enthusiasm. It's an 11th inning walk off to win the national championship in the last game ever at Rosenblatt, right? I mean, you can't, it would be criminal to undersell that. So I was glad I struck the right tone, tone without irritating, to the best of my knowledge, any UCLA partisans. But yeah, the College World Series is great, man. So I was there in 10, and then I went back in 12, and then UCLA won it all in 13. You've mentioned a couple times about you know, the pressure of nailing a big moment. And I actually just wrote a blog post not that long ago from when we're recording this. By the time it's released, it'll have been a little while. But it was about buzzer beaters and big moments and how to nail those nail those times that, you know, right or wrong is what we're remembered by. What are, is your philosophy into how to make sure you kill those moments? State the facts and shut the bleep up. Simple enough. Just so when you talked about one, just to backtrack a little bit, another reason I decided to get back into broadcasting was living in Los Angeles and listening to Vin Scully for five years just as a fan. And I was so struck by his lyricism, his poetic voice, and his economy in big moments that it was inspirational. Uh, it made me want to do it. Uh, and Vin talks about calling Hank Aaron's 715th home run uh, to move ahead of Babe Ruth on the career list. And, you know, that is a brilliant call, but it's often edited to eliminate some of, I believe, over 60 seconds of crowd noise that he allows. Um, there's another great moment. This is a great moment from my childhood growing up in the Bay Area. The Giants won the pennant in 1989 against the Cubs. And Will Clark had, a, I think, a two-RBI single in the eighth inning to put him ahead in the clinching fifth game. And Scully and Garagiola, I believe, were on the call for NBC. And Clark hits the single up the middle off Mitch Williams. Two runs come in. Scully explains what's happened. And then Candlestick's got 62,000 people in it going bananas. Giants hadn't won a pennant in 27 years. And there's another 90 seconds of TV, and it's just you see the pitching coach coming in. You see Williams walking off. The crowd's going absolutely crazy. And there's – I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just 60 seconds of pictures. But you see that – you see that Williams has not held the lead. He's coming out of the game. Candlesticks coming apart at the seams, and the Giants are now three outs away from the pennant. But the fact that Scully shut up uh, is brilliant. And in fact, that's one reason why I would like to work more in television because I feel like you can actually you can say less and have it carry more meaning because of the visual component. So that I mean, that's the stuff I live for, right? Crowd noise. Vin talks about crowd noise all the time. I mean, you cannot really mess up 
a big group of people losing their minds with ecstatic joy, provided you kind of get the basic essentials right. We kind of went over how you got the break to get to UC Riverside. And then from there, you were able to get involved with UCLA with uh, their baseball, some fill-in basketball. You were involved with the football broadcast, kind of able to get that foot in the door with a Power 5 team. How were you able to do that? So one one of the reasons I was so uh, enthusiastic about the opportunity at UC Riverside, I was living in L.A., Riverside, 60 minutes east. I could live in Los Angeles, play music, live my life go have an opportunity to do D1 women's games. And then nobody was doing the baseball game. So I started doing baseball. And Riverside would play USC and Riverside would play UCLA. And I would always diligently, hopefully not irritatingly, but you know how it is. You got to be pushy a little bit. I would always let the SIDs and folks know, hey, you need a warm body, Mr. Trojan, Mr. Bruin, Miss Trojan, Miss Bruin, whoever the SIDs were. You need a warm body in LA ever. You know, I'm here. I work for Riverside, but if you need me to fill in, let me know. And I guess I made a good impression on Alex Timoros, who was then the baseball SID at UCLA, who's now the basketball SID. And Alex is still one of my best friends. Um, but they had an opening in 2010 for baseball. And I just got an email out of the blue. I mean, I, I, had, I had struck up a cordial professional connection, a cordial uh, rapport with Alex, with UCLA, because Riverside probably came to UCLA two or three times while I was covering their baseball games. And they had an opening for baseball and I went and interviewed and I got it, you know, and, uh, and then that year they go to the college world series. And I guess I did a reasonable job because they asked me to do soccer that fall. And then I did soccer and baseball, men's and women's soccer, baseball, fill in on, water polo, filling on volleyball, filling on, you know, whatever. It's just Olympic sports. I mean, it was not a lucrative endeavor, but I mean, I was getting to court games at UCLA. I was getting to call baseball in Los Angeles. You know, these are incredible things. And after 2013 and the national championship in June, um, I received a call from the IMG folks who handled the football and basketball broadcasts at UCLA and they were launching a new iteration of a coaching show called the Bruin Insider and they asked me to host it and so that's how I got involved with men's basketball and football at UCLA and I eventually ended up after Chris Roberts retired the great hall of famer there uh, I would I ended up being the spotter and producer for Bill Roth um, who's still a great friend of mine in his one year at UCLA I produced and spotted for him on football and then Josh Lewin, who's still the voice at UCLA, I produced and spotted for him on football uh, before I got the Nevada job. And I also filled in for Josh one game on men's basketball um, when he had a conflict with, I believe, the Chargers. He was still doing the Chargers. So, you know, it, it took eight years, <laughs> but I did manage to carve out some amazing opportunities. You know, and you're going to work at the Rose Bowl. I mean, come on, you know, like. Sure, I would have loved to have been calling those games, but spotting for Bill Roth and Josh Lewin, you know, I mean, talk about, you know, I mean, those are unbelievable opportunities. So then from there, 
your next stop was where you're at right now, the University yeah. of Nevada. How did that come about? Take us through that process, because that's pretty recent. So I had a relationship with Learfield. Uh, Riverside had become a Learfield property. And I knew Tom Bowman through some connections, uh, some friends, just in broadcasting. And, and Bill Roth was really helpful because Bill knows everybody. Um, he was just like, yeah, you know, make sure you're on Bowman's radar. Make sure you're on Chris Ferris's radar with IMG. I would fill in for IMG properties like during Thanksgiving when there's football, basketball crossover, and maybe Virginia Tech is at the Wooden Classic in Anaheim. I would fill in, fill in on a Boston College broadcast. Um, so I was kind of building, just slowly building, you know, chipping away. And I think for uh, a Learfield property, St. Cloud State, a Division II program, played in a tournament in Orange County. And Bowman asked me to do it. I said, absolutely. You know, so I just, I kind of, yeah, again, it's the, it's the non-irritating follow-up, right? Hi, guys, I'm available if you need me. And as you know, as everybody who works in show business or media or whatever knows, the most important ability in show business is availability, right? And so anybody who has to organize anything, it's always helpful to know somebody's around who can get on the air and read the commercials and whatever. So I just tried to kind of cast myself as that guy in Southern California. And I apparently did a reasonable job. And then this Nevada position to open up when Ryan Radke uh, moved up to Westwood one. And for me, the real, I mean, if you're talking to me a one year ago, I'm doing UCLA baseball. I'm doing the coaches show. I'm doing UC Riverside basketball. I'm picking up whatever fill-ins I can. The only two missing pieces for me as a play-by-play voice were football, college football. I'd done a fair amount of high school football. And then TV. So when the Nevada opportunity opened up, it was Learfield. I knew Bowman. I talked to Bowman about other jobs. He had been very candid with me. He said, I don't think you're a good fit for that. Um, this one, it seemed like I would be potentially a good fit. I went through the interview process. Um, and, you know, Reno is a city and it's in the West. Uh, it's in the Pacific time zone. It's, you know, it's right next to the Bay Area where I grew up. It's an hour flight from Los Angeles where I have friends and family, you know. So it was a great fit. And I, it's really just been the opportunity of a lifetime. I mean, it's a, it's a dream job. It's, it's a great institution, great community. People are great to work with. Um, so, yeah, I think, I, I think the recurring theme of this podcast, my man, is John Ramey has been fortunate. <laughs> Was there any culture shock going from Southern California to Reno? I mean, it won't stop snowing. No, I'm just kidding. Today it's like 60 degrees and I have my door open, my sliding door open. Um, that's colder. It's a smaller city, but it's still a city. You know, there's art museums, there's a Philharmonic, uh, you know, there's culture, public art, cool architecture. I mean, it, the culture shock was a lot less than I thought. I mean, I love Los Angeles. I think it's an incredible place. But, you know, I'd been there for 17 years. I mean, it was, it was cool. It's, it's, I embraced the change. And, it, you know, it's good. It's good to stir up the chi. It's good to be uncomfortable a little bit. 
and uh, I'm, I'm forging some great friendships and relationships here in Reno. And uh, yeah, the culture shock was actually a lot less severe than I anticipated. I mean, the thing that really gets me is like, it's funny, like when I have a Sunday off, I can't just pop over to my friend's house and watch the NFL. I mean, I know that's so silly. I don't even, I'm not that much of an NFL fan, but it was a social activity I liked, kind of mindless, you know, when I would have a Sunday off. That's probably the biggest change is that I can't just, you know, go for a 20 minute walk to my buddy's house and, and watch the NFL games. But there's a lot of people to watch games with here and it's a cool town. It's great nightlife. It's great cultural vibrancy. Uh, I, I dig it. So the first time I heard your name uh, actually was when you were part of an STAA member makeover. Probably had to be like two years ago. Um, I'm going to say less less than that. Okay. Well, I just yeah. uh, I rewatched it before this, and I know that at that time, and I don't want to speak for you because he doesn't go too deep into the psyche behind why you're in it, but it seemed like there was some frustration and some rejections that were maybe getting to you. I guess what changes did you make based off of that? And do you feel like that had a direct effect? Uh, yeah. I mean, listen, once I got Chelesnik involved with kind of repping me, uh, I think things moved along. John knows what he's talking about. And it's funny. I don't want to, I, I appreciate you not wanting you to speak for me. I'd like to, I, I want to make sure that I'm very clear about this. Any job I might've thought I wanted before or thought I was qualified to do before, I want to be very, very clear. I don't, there, there are way too many good people and way too few jobs. I don't ever want to sound entitled. I especially don't want to sound entitled because as we've detailed in this podcast, I've had some really good breaks. So I wanted to move up. I wanted to do football. You know, we all have professional ambition. Um, that was probably more than anything. I mean, I, th- I to be honest, I, I haven't looked at that in a while. That may have been, I don't want to pin it on John, but John may have kind of crafted that narrative a little bit, or maybe I was super salty and pissed off and don't, don't remember, (laughs) but I was never, I mean, the good thing is I had the crap kicked out of me trying to be an independent singer songwriter for years before I ever really tried to do this as a job. And so, you know, all the, all the entitlement was kind of beaten out of me (laughs) or all the, all the, you know, all the hope. All the all the optimism was, you know, sufficiently removed from my spirit long before I got into the play-by-play racket. So uh, I think the makeover was helpful. But I mean, John just had like, here, do this, make your resume say this, make it look like this, present this. You know, it just really common sense um, presentational stuff more than anything. I would, I, I really hope I didn't sound bitter or frustrated with rejection. How many jobs are there? There's, there's like a hundred jobs. I mean, truly, how many jobs are there worth having in sports? Let's just say radio, right? Not that many. So, and there's a lot of people who want to do it. Yeah. And a lot, and a lot of people who can do it, right? 
I mean, let's say I didn't get this Nevada job. There are, I'm confident, 10 people who could have done a very competent professional job. Probably yeah. a thousand, but like <laughs> certainly 10 that would have been a good fit. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. I actually applied for that job. <laughs> but that's so don't worry, no bitter feelings or anything, but uh, I did not get very far in the process. Listen, man, listen, you can always be better with me. I, I, off the record, I love to gripe and, and, uh, you know, that's, that's fun stuff, but not on the podcast. No, it's, uh, I, I had a similar story when I had Adam Amin on his very first job was in just a little town in middle of nowhere, Iowa. And I happened to be applying for that one too. And he beat me out for it. And I, I kind of sprung that on him, and I think it was maybe a little off-putting, so I've avoided stories like that since then. <laughs> uh, it's funny. Well, Adam's extremely good. Yeah, yeah, no. In hindsight, it makes complete yeah. sense that he would get it and I would not. So um, give us some fun stories from the road as a musician. We, we I always do broadcast horror stories, and we'll get to those. But I imagine there's some very unique ones that would just be fun to share from your time as a touring musician. First of all, I was never like out on the road for months at a time. It was weekenders in a minivan or maybe a week at a time. Um, when I was playing bass for a guy called Dave Inslee and the careless smokers, we once played in studio in Detroit on Mitch albums, daytime talk show, which was an interesting experience. Um, uh, we did the two Skinner shows. Those were great with Austin Hanks and the California King Snakes. Uh, there's a place up by Yosemite called Groveland, California, and uh, it's home to the oldest continually operational saloon in the state called the Iron Door Saloon. And that was always a place where L.A. guys would kind of make the drive up, get out of town, get to nature, get up in the mountains. And we'd do a weekend there. And I'd had my band there, John Lafayette, Ramey, and the orchestra. And I played with other people there. And uh, that was always fun because you kind of, it's like a real old-timey saloon. And you, like, stay above the saloon. And there's, like, one main drag through town. And it's just on the western entrance to Yosemite. It's beautiful country, Highway 120. I don't have anything that good, man. I mean, it's just, if you're, if you're in a small act, the, the idea that it's, uh, Sex, drugs, and rock and roll is not true because you have to stay till last call and then you have to load up the van. And like, no matter how <laughs> flirtatious memories made the clock, they don't maintain that enthusiasm till 2.30, you know, in the morning. Um, so no great, you know, just kind of general tomfoolery. Uh, I'm trying to think, is there anything incriminating that I could hint at? But no. You know, play, play, playing good, going on to a new town. I mean, those are fun things. Uh, let me think. No, nothing, nothing, uh, nothing spectacular. I, you know what? If you'd asked me that ahead of time, I might have been able to, to mine my memory a little bit, but I don't. Just, yeah, just memories with people. I mean, it's, it's kind of, look, it's kind of like being on the road with a team, right? It's really just about the relationships. 
maybe you remember, oh yeah, that one gig where the drummer was sick or drunk or whatever. And oh, wasn't that funny? We pulled through anyway, you know, but nothing, uh, nothing too crazy. So let's flip that around and talk about broadcasting stories then. Uh, going around for UC Riverside, uh, I'm going to imagine you, you had to do some traveling and go to some unique places. Uh, what are some of the broadcasting challenges or unique locations or anything that maybe was uh, difficult to get through at that time but you laugh at now? Qualcomm formerly Jack Murphy Stadium, fall 2017, no uh, Ethernet. We had to do the broadcast uh, via a cellular connection. At the time, I was livid. Uh, I wasn't livid. I was, I was short. I was, I, was, uh, I was disappointed. I was frustrated. Now I think it's hilarious. Um, Good lesson about being proactive as opposed to reactive. Uh, I had, oh, first game of the College World Series Finals 2010. Uh, my mixing board blew up, like had a power surge or something, went pop, and I called the game on a handset phone. Hmm. Uh, Nothing too calamitous. I mean, I'll tell you what, people like people have dreams about having to take finals they've never studied for. My stress dreams are always I'm about to go on stage with a band and I don't know the tunes or I can't get my guitar in tune or I'm about to do a broadcast and I can't get on the air or I can't find a roster. Things like that. So um, with the with the combination of being both a broadcaster and a singer, how many times do you does your voice get recognized in the drive through? Uh, never, actually. I've never had that happen. Really? Really, yeah. I've even had that happen. <laughs> Something to look forward to, man. Uh, what's your, what do you do to this day? I mean, not that you're, I mean, you're a veteran, but it's not like you're old, old. But what do you do to improve at the craft on a regular basis? Always air check yourself. Always, always, always air check yourself, you know. Uh Good or bad. I mean, I don't, I don't listen to every game start to finish anymore like I did when I was starting out. But check yourself once a week. You're probably not identifying which team has possession as much as you could in basketball. You're probably not identifying the tackler as consistently as you could in football. Um, you know, you're probably not – giving the score or explaining whether it's a right-hand batter versus a right-hand pitcher or whatever in baseball as much as you could. Because we're, uh, we're kind of like, I mean, especially with radio, because there's no pictures, we're kind of, um, you know, like when an airplane has, I don't know what the chemical is, but, you know, skywriting, right? If you, if you write like, I love Logan in the sky, right? Like yeah, people do that all the time. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the wind pushes, the wind obscures, atmospheric movement will obscure whatever you've just written in the sky, right? And so I find, especially in radio, you know, say things more than once because people might not be listening super closely, uh, you know. 
especially like say something before the play. And then if it's a big play, make sure you get a real quick tag it recap in there because folks are doing the dishes or they're cleaning out the gutters or they're looking for something in the, in the garage while they're listening to the radio or they're on the treadmill looking out the window or whatever. And, you know, then all of a sudden the crowd gets loud, you get loud. Maybe they're like, Oh, what's happening? You know? So there's always, there's always things you can do better pacing, phrasing. Yeah. Just make sure you listen to yourself and listen critically, you know, listen, like listen with a fundamental ear. Um, because once you have faith in your fundamentals, then you can work on tone and, and, uh, and poetry and storytelling and all that. But it, none of that's worth a damn if you don't, if you're not technically sound, especially on the radio. I've always had a certain fascination and I do obviously the fact that this podcast exists and I quite frankly, spend my own money to do this. I don't make any on it. I obviously love the craft of sportscasting, but the average listener cares about time and score, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And it's it's always a difficult, maybe not difficult, but a, an interesting balance of remembering that and making sure that that they get what they want because that's ultimately what matters. I mean, I, I like to remind people at the end of the day, we're reporters. It's not about us. Like maybe if the moment's great and the call is great, sure. It becomes a little bit about us, right? Um, Joe Starkey's a family friend. The band is on the field. I mean, the call's as famous as the play, but generally speaking, you're reporting information people want to know now. So it's not about you. And that's always been my philosophy. It's not about me. Like as excited as I may get in a big moment or um, as exciting as a big moment may become, I am, you know, my number one rule is if the moment's big, I don't have to be big. I just have to say what's going on because the moment takes care of itself. But it's not about you. People aren't generally tuning in to hear the broadcaster. Now, with Mr. Scully and with other folks, it's, a little bit different, but by and large, they're tuning in to hear the game 99% of the time. So, you know, just make sure you're not bigger than the game. You know, one of the things that I like to ask, and I've asked several people about who have experience doing, you know, women's soccer and Olympic sports, and sure. I'm going to guess sports that you are not an avid participator in if participator probably isn't the right word, but you know what I mean. Um, how do you learn how to be a competent broadcaster for something that you have no familiarity with or limited familiarity with? Go to practice, talk to coaches. Uh, if it's an Olympic sport, find an archive of it online, find YouTube. You know, literally, you can probably find archives of Olympic examples of that sport. Um, but I, you know, I've called volleyball on like video streams. You know, I, I, I probably isn't like the greatest thing. It's not the greatest thing I've ever done, but I was working solo and I wasn't going to try to, you know, break down, uh, rotations, you know, I just wanted to identify 
player and score and some, you know, statistics. But by and large, I just, you know, if you really don't know it and you don't have time to dig into it, and in this example, I, I kind of just stepped up and did it. You know, just be a reporter. Like, not every news reporter has covered an earthquake before they cover their first earthquake. But there's still, like, basic journalistic ground rules you follow. Um, but, yeah, if you have an opportunity to prepare, uh, you know, read a book, go to practice, make a good faith effort to learn from the coaches, because they'll appreciate it, and they'll give you a longer leash if you say something that's incorrect. Um, that, that would be... That, so let me just let me distill that. Be a reporter. Don't forget that you're still just reporting the facts. Go to practice. Try to find an example of it, a broadcast example of the sport somewhere online. And uh, what was my other one? I don't. I forget. <laughs> I, I also forget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Must have been real important, right? Yeah. I mean the so. Like, Soccer is basically just a big outdoor basketball game with no baskets. That's how I call it. Uh, water polo, kind of the same, only faster, uh, fewer people than soccer, and there's a shot clock. So water polo is actually really fun, and it's great sonically, too, because like the water splashing. It's very good ambient kind of environment. Volleyball is pretty self-explanatory, you know? It's really interesting how most games – with certainly some notable exceptions have similar rhythms that if you can sure. do one, you can do the other. For example, I've did both hockey and volleyball having very little familiarity with either one, but if you have a certain broadcasting base, you can usually figure it out. Right. Right. Again, it's like, it's like a reporter. If you've never covered uh city hall and then you have to go do a story, like it's still just explaining what happened and maybe, you know, some ideas as to why it happened. So who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to, uh, both on a national level and just uh, maybe some below-the-radar people that others on this podcast may not have heard of that would like to check out? Obviously my dad. Um, big influence on me. And, and the cool thing about my dad is he grew up listening to Bill King and Lon Simmons and is a peer uh, of John Miller's. They came up together. Um, I know my dad uh, really looked up to Russ Hodges, who's the original voice of the San Francisco Giants, along with Lon Simmons. Um, before I go deeper into this list, I just want to say it pains me how homogenous this list is, right? It's, it's all white dudes. So, like, Broadcasters out there, let's empower other voices. Um, I love Bill Roth. I didn't know Bill's work too much until I got to know him and worked with him at UCLA, but I've gone back and, and checked out his work at, at Virginia Tech and other places, and I think he's magnificent. Um, yeah, who do I like? I like Ted Leitner at San Diego, the Padres in San Diego State. I've always liked him. It's funny because he's, he's not uh, – I mean, he's kind of an old school homer, but I just find him such a delightful listen. Um, I, I tell you what, for as much as people hate on broadcasters, I don't think there are too many people left who aren't very good. I think most of the people working are really good. You know, like, I think Charlie Steiner's really good. 
with the Dodgers. And at first I was like, who's this guy? I mean, I knew who he was, but I wasn't, I wasn't really locked in. And now I love listening to him. Um, Ken Korak with the A's is really good. Uh, obviously, uh, John Miller and um, Fleming are great with the Giants. But, I mean, most people are, you know, I, I could go on. I like Al Michaels. That's probably not breaking any ground. Um, I don't know anything about hockey, but Doc Emmerich sure is exciting to listen to. And, <laughs> That's how you know you're good if you can make yeah. someone who doesn't know about the game excited to listen to you. Yeah, I mean, I think Mike Breen does a great job. Um, I did, you know, there was a time, long time actually, where I didn't have cable, and sometimes I'd listen, you know, I'd watch Univision, uh, soccer and, and boxing. And so I do, I did, I don't know if I've really, if it ever presents itself in my style, but I, I definitely like um, Andres Contour. Um, he's a great football uh, voice. And, uh, I generally appreciate the uh, the Latin uh, broadcasting approach, which is a little bit different than the uh, English speaking approach. What is your philosophy on social media? Social media is obviously a very powerful tool. Social media is a way in which you, if you perhaps call an Olympic sporting event that was seen by two hundred people, but you have you've archived it and you've cut a little nice highlight package, and you want more people to see it. Your highlight sizzle reel. It's a great way to get your work out there. Um, I think it's a it's a great tool. It's a great tool. I mean, how did people? How did South Carolina people know that I even existed? Let alone called for UCLA their national championship in 2010. Well, I cut it. I put it on YouTube and I tweeted it. Right? Like, it's a very valuable tool. I don't think it's possible to be elegant with regard to editorializing about really anything on social media. And I find myself doing it on Twitter every now and then, every now and then just to kind of pretend like I am, I don't want to say pretend. I, I do it every now and then just to make sure that people don't feel like my Twitter feeds just retweets of promotional stuff or whatever, you know, listen live here. But by and large, I, am, I have yet to be convinced that you can be elegant in an editorial manner on any social media platform. Yeah, certainly you're not changing a whole lot of minds uh, on social media. Let, let, let me, let me uh, clarify that. I think there's some political reporters. I think there's some culture reporters uh, who do a great job of that. I'm not convinced I can do it. I'm not convinced sports broadcasters can do it. All right. Well, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, how would they do that? At Wolf underscore Pack underscore Radio. <laughs> good job, man. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 the ultimate segue, right? <laughs> yeah, very good. At Wolf underscore Pack underscore Radio. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. Please subscribe to the show and any or all of its social media platforms by clicking on the big red subscribe button on SayTheDamnScore.com. I also appreciate honest iTunes reviews or any honest feedback for that matter that can help me make the show even better. I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.